What if God is not a problem to be solved? What if music can help us imagine and understand God? Hi, I am Sarah Bariza, and this is Music and the Church, a podcast about thinking bigger in our faith and our ministries. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Jeremy Begbie about his recent book, A Peculiar Orthodoxy, Reflections on Theology and the Arts. Some of the themes we cover are how music can help us think about our faith, created beauty and creative beauty, and sentimentality. And yes, how God isn't really a problem, and also why church services need more dissonant music. Jeremy Begbie is a professor of theology at Duke University and a professor at Wolfson College, Cambridge. His numerous books include Resounding Truth, Christian Wisdom in the World of Music, and Theology, Music, and Time. He has also performed extensively as a musician and is an ordained minister of the Church of England. One more thing before getting into our conversation. I want to invite you all to check out my new podcast called At the Intersection of Life and Ministry. Called just launched last week, and it is a podcast full of practical advice for church staff on working smart and embracing the good in ministry. If that sounds like something for you, I hope you'll check it out wherever you listen to podcasts. And now, here's Jeremy Begbie and I discussing his recent book, A Peculiar Orthodoxy, Reflections on Theology and the Arts. Can you tell us about a little bit about your background? Because you're coming, coming to your research as a Christian and someone who's even ordained, but also someone who's deeply trained as a musician. Yes. Um, thank you, Sarah. I was brought up in Scotland, and I tr- was, ever since I was about oh, six or seven, I wanted to do music professionally. In other words, that was really the only career possibility for me. And I, didn't, I wasn't particularly interested in anything else um, as a career. And I, I first started playing the piano when I was about seven, and later, about 12 or 13, played the oboe. I composed a lot, I did a bit of conducting, I played in competitions, and what I wanted to be was a performer, perhaps a teacher as well, um, perhaps even an academic post in music, but music was my thing, and I thought that it did every, everything that a, a good self-respecting religion ought to be doing as well. So as far as the Christian thing was concerned, I went to church every now and then, but all that fell off, for, I'd say, about when I was nine or 10, probably. Um, I was never a hardline atheist, but I was suspicious of the Christian faith. I think that's about as far as it went, and um, didn't really do much to explore it. When I was maybe 18 or 19, a university friend of mine who I'd been at school with, who I'd done a lot of music with, started introducing me to the world of the New Testament and to the Christian faith more generally. And I realized that the Bible, which of course I'd never read, was saying all sorts of things I didn't realize it was saying, and that basically it was good news, and good news that I'd never really heard. And then my life really swiveled around. It would all happen in about two or three months. Um, and at the center of that was an overwhelming experience of the personal reality of Jesus Christ. That's what was going on, that I couldn't keep this person locked in the pages of the book. Uh, but it was the kind of living presence, the living reality. Very soon after that, I felt a call to ordination, which was a bit ridiculous because I was set on this career towards music. My parents were pretty mad. <laughs> but I felt a call to ordination and went through the selection procedure. 
and was recommended for ordination training. I did theology at uh, Aberdeen. This was after a degree in music at Edinburgh. And then to ordination training. Then I was in a parish for three years and always intended to be a parish minister, parish priest. That's all I wanted to do in the Church of England. But right from the start, I wanted to see how I could combine the worlds of music and the worlds of theology. As it turned out, I ended up teaching at uh, Cambridge and then at the University of St. Andrews and then uh, Duke University. I ended up being a theology teacher. Uh, and I've tried to keep those worlds going to get, together in various ways. Should I talk a bit about those three possibilities? Yes, please. Yeah. The, well, the first way is what I call, uh, this is what I'm trying to bring together music and the Christian faith. Uh, the first way is obviously music for worship. That when I became a Christian, everyone said to me, or a lot of people said to me, well, now you can write hymns for the church. And sure enough, I can do that and have done a bit of that. And music and worship is very important uh, to me. But what's also important is a second form, what I call theology for music, a second way of relating music and faith. And that's where you begin with a Christian belief and you ask, now, how does that belief work itself out in, in the world of music? So it could be a belief about um, God creating the world and ordered and an ordered cosmos, a wonderful place to be. Uh, what does that have to say or to do with the business of creating music? The third way, though, is when you switch the order of those two. And that is what I call music for theology. And that's when you begin with something you can find in the world of music. And you say, how can that help us discover and think more clearly about the Christian faith and the Christian gospel? I can give examples of these later. But those three ways I've found over the years have been, have been the main ways in which I've tried to keep the world of music and the world of Christian faith together. I try to keep up my music in most ways, though, mm-hmm. not just thinking about voice or playing. I still perform a lot on the piano. I used to play the oboe. I've given that up, uh, but I but I can I compose a bit and conduct uh, when necessary. When I think of the third the third case that you're talking about, I'm thinking about I, I have a two year old and I'm thinking of all the metaphors that I kind of grasp at to say, well, here's what God is like. Here's what God is like. Here's what it means to orient your heart toward God, and you know, metaphors of mountain or music and. It's, I feel like we don't always think of music in that way, but music is such a profound way of, of doing that, of saying, here's, here's a way of approaching to God. Absolutely. And I found that in my teaching, uh, both in churches, in colleges, universities, amongst atheists, agnostics, all sorts of people, mm-hmm. I found that music can unlock the truths of the Christian faith. Indeed, provide very powerful metaphors, and not just metaphors for the mind, but metaphors for the heart and body as well, because music involves the whole of us, not yes. just the mind. I mean, one of the most obvious that's just sort of sitting there, although it's taken a long time for people to see it, I think, is, is a matter of a three-note chord for the Trinity. That in the world we see, we just use our eyes, uh, the Trinity is going to be very hard, because in the world we see, objects occupy, objects in our visual space occupy bounded locations with edges. A thing that we see has edges to it. And there are parts of our visual field where that thing doesn't exist. You know, I see a red patch there, but it's not over there. It's just here because it's got a, a boundary. If I try to bring something else, like a yellow patch, uh, paint perhaps on a canvas, and I try to put it in the same space as the red, the red will hide the yellow. 
or the paint's still wet, I suppose they turn orange. The point is you can't see red and yellow in the same space at the same time as different. They will either, one will hide the other or they will merge. And that's just the way we see the world. Objects in our visual field um, are like that. Now, the world of sound, that's quite different because uh, a sound that we heard, that we hear, doesn't fill one particular space. It fills the whole of the space that we hear. When we hear a sound, we don't say, well, I'm hearing it in this part of my heard space, but I'm not hearing it over there. It may come from a particular place, but what we actually hear fills, fills the it's everywhere in the space that we hear. If you bring another note along with that, it fills the same space, but you'll hear it as distinct. You'll know it's a different note. And of course, if you bring a third note, you'll find it occupies the same space, um, but you hear it as distinct from the others. So in the world that we hear, things can be in the same place at the same time, and yet you hear them as different. And that, it seems to me, is a wonderful way of thinking of the threeness and oneness of God. And it's even more wonderful if you think about the way sounds set each other up. So if you play a major chord on a piano, the, sound, the strings will set each other up. They'll enhance each other. One will enable the other to vibrate more freely. Um, and that's a wonderful matter for what's going on in the Trinity, according to Christian faith, mm -hmm. of the mutual love of the persons of the Trinity. Uh, this, is, this is how we believe God exists. So to come back to your two-year-old, I don't know, I've not tried it with the two-year-old, but I have tried it with other with other children, but uh, the great thing about a chord, you're already dealing with something that people enjoy. You're not telling people God is a problem to be solved. Mm -hmm. You're saying that the Trinity is a reality to be enjoyed mm -hmm. uh, because you're speaking about the life of God. Mm -hmm. Here's something beautiful that can tell us something about God to give us a, give us a way of thinking about God. Of Absolutely. God. Absolutely. Yeah. It's instantly attractive. and doesn't leave you with the idea that God's a problem. The, of course, a lot of visual illustrations do just that. And, um, and, and it makes it sound like we've got a terrible problem to solve. Yeah, music's much more pleasurable. I think that you've also talked about this in relationship of Christ's incarnation, humanity and yes. divinity together. Indeed, the human, humanity and divinity, we very often tend to think of as like two objects that have to be reconciled somehow. Mm -hmm. uh, or we speak about them as balanced against each other, as if you have more of the one, you'll have less of the other, and vice versa. Mm -hmm. That way of thinking uh, disappears if you think in terms of sound, because when one string sets off another, the, the more the first string sounds, the more the second will sound. It's mm -hmm. not a case of them competing for the same space. Meaning of the two natures of Christ, it's very easy to think of divinity and humanity kind of sitting alongside each other, battling for the same space. You think in terms of sound, that's, that's just not going to be the case. And I think that's what the New Testament is trying to tell us. I think that that is one of the most profound things that you've offered in your theology over the years is, is, is that way of thinking through the, through the Trinity, thinking about that, thinking through music. Well, you're, you're very kind, um, Sarah. You're probably over-generous. <laughs> no, but it's... it's, um, it's but that's know, kind. It's, it's funny that you think... I think that, that what you've actually done is made it more complicated, but in a really productive way. Because I, I remember even as a child, people being like, oh, God is like a, a triad chord, one, two, three, and they sound so great together. But then not really explaining that and not thinking about it as sound in space. And just feel yeah, like, oh, well, we have right. these three things that sound good together, and there are three things that they sound good, which doesn't, that doesn't do you very much for thinking about the Trinity. Well, I think, um, uh, I think it can be expanded in all sorts of ways. You think about a, a congregation singing. Uh, but, 
perhaps the indeed the congregation singing in harmony. Let's imagine. Mm -hmm. See what you what you're hearing there. Suppose you're singing four part harmony. What you're hearing is four notes in the same heard space. Yet they don't compete with each other. They enhance one another mm -hmm. in a very profound way. That's quite hard to see, but very easy to hear. And I think that's a, a powerful metaphor for, for the body of Christ. What it means to love each other. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not that we're competing for the same space. And certainly not that we're merging into some, um, I don't know, gray, gray blob. <laughs> it's, Each of us in our own distinctiveness can flourish. And I think that's what the New Testament is trying to say about what the church ought to be. That the, Paradoxically, the closer we are and the more we're really dedicated to each other, uh, the more distinctively ourselves will become. It's something I'm sometimes preaching to the choir, literally, in the choir that I direct and telling them, you're, you're showing us what community is like. You're creating Absolutely, that's you're creating, exactly you're it. You're showing the whole congregation what community is. That's exactly what I'm saying. That yeah. You're not just singing about things and, and putting nice gloss onto words. You're actually embodying something, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which, which itself being. has its own powerful theological message. Even though people might not be able to articulate, but they can hear it. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why we do do sing together so much because we can have an experience of unity and diversity mm -hmm. within that singing experience that's very hard to get in in any other way do you want to talk about beauty and what created beauty can be wow <laughs> well wow. that's a big one and i'm thinking specifically in in your book a peculiar orthodoxy you've talked about box music and here's what here's what you said a vision of the relationship between You've talked about box music as a vision of the relationship between given and artistic beauty that doesn't assume an intrinsic tussle between them. Yeah, um, oh, nice. you you put that very well. You put it probably much better than than I do. Uh, what interests me about Bach, I think, is that he stands he stands between the ancient or medieval era and let's call it the modern era at the moment. And the major, in the medieval era, it was strongly believed that music, the music we make, the sounds that we put together, must in some way reflect or tap into the order of the cosmos as a whole. In fact, in many visions, they believed that the, the cosmos was musical, that it was, it was vibrations, it was sound, like, I don't know, superstring theory or something like that. And now what you ought to be doing when you're making music is tapping into that. And the closer you were to the harmony of the cosmos, the better the music. Indeed, it was a moral matter. that The closer you were to the harmony, uh, harmony of the world, the more you would be in harmony with yourself. So music was indeed therapeutic. And if you got the music wrong, then you probably do yourself and others more harm than good. Now, Bach knew that tradition, but he also stands in the modern era. In the modern era, there's a very strong notion of uh, creativity, inventiveness, taking what you're given in the creative world, but making new things out of it. Uh, that's a characteristically modern way of looking at things from probably the Renaissance onwards. Uh, Bach inherits that. But one of the interesting things about Bach is that certainly in his time, and many have said this since, he seems to be able to make music that makes sense. That is, which taps into a wider order. Indeed, a lot of his pieces are improvisations on what's called a harmonic series, which is just built into the natural world. Mm -hmm. So he's doing that, 
but he's also being incredibly inventive, uh, incredibly inventive. But it's the kind of inventiveness you feel doesn't violate or, or harm or distort the materials that he's dealing with. So it's as if he's taking, I don't know, a, a motif or a chord or something like that, and he's thinking, well, what can this become? How can I, how can I work with this and develop it in a way that's tr true to its nature? It's like, a, you know, with a cat, who stroke a cat the wrong way, what happens? Mm -hmm. uh, you stroke it the right way, it goes very nicely. Um, you speak to a sculptor, very often they talk about going with the grain of the wood. I make violins as a, as a hobby, and violas as a hobby, and I've learned a great deal about, as they say in the workshop, listening to the wood or feeling the wood. It's not that it's just one way, right way of doing things. You first learn uh, the many types of grain and what they call the flair of the wood, and then you work with that to create something beautiful. I think what Bach, I think... I mean, of course, it takes a long time to argue, but I think that's what Bach's doing. And what's interesting, therefore, you don't have, as you put it right at the beginning, Sarah, you don't have a tussle between the two. You don't say, you don't think that it's wrong to be inventive because you're going to destroy the, the cosmos. <laughs> mm -hmm. On the other hand, you don't just listen to the cosmos and hear the humming at the heart of the world and just, uh, you know, put a microphone and call it music. No, mm -hmm. we're called to make music. And, and that's a great vision of creativity, not just in music, course of the arts but if you think about it um so, uh, technology at its best or um oh, i don't know uh, building almost anything um mm -hmm. today with the ecological destruction uh, this is very you know it's very important yeah it's, it's very very relevant that are we going to work with the green universe there's nothing wrong with making things and technology provided we don't destroy the very things that we're working mm -hmm. with so this is, you know, it's a very big issue. Now, Bach's not the only composer, I think, that does that. But it's, it's interesting that the, the accounts of him at the time, and many people have spoken about him since, in a way that suggests that, that he was doing something like that. You don't have to see discovery and creativity as working against each other. You can be creative and discover the order of the world at the same time. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Maybe you'd find that a really productive place to be. Absolutely. Exponentially more Absolutely. productive place to be. I mean, you would hope that that's the way we treat each other as well. You know, we're not just talking about physical objects, but, but if you're, I used to teach the piano a lot, and I'm, I'm sure you teach as well, Sarah, you can't, you can't just impose a pattern on people. Mm. <laughs> to a certain extent you can, and their techniques or whatever, but you have to listen to who you're dealing with, mm -hmm. and you have to work with them. And then, as it were, unlock the creativity of them and indeed your own creativity in a way that's true to what you're dealing with. And I think that's a I think it gives us a wonderful vision of creativity. So that's what it's that's what that bit about. As you think about how did God make me, and duty is too strong a word, but thinking, well, how did God make me, and how can I be the best version of what God made me to be, and how can I treat other people as the best version of who they are, who they were actually made to, to be? Lovely. Educate them in that way, work with them as volunteers, however it is that we're working with people in a, in a church setting. How do I bring out the best in them? That's lovely. And I suppose, I mean, built into that model is, is the idea that we become what we're meant to be. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we're not ready-made. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. uh, that that my, my identity, who I am, is something that I discover over time. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the same with our, that's definitely the same, if you're working with a choir, you may not know at the beginning how this is going to turn out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's part of the journey is an excitement is finding all these you know, new things about people, mm-hmm. including their faults, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then working with that. It's a bit like a marriage. I mean, gosh, you must know. I mean, no one really, knows, however well you know someone when you first get married, you, you don't actually know them mm. that well. Yeah. Uh, you need, you know, it takes a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they know themselves the that well. Yeah. Precisely. And that's the adventure. That's it. Yeah. If only people were as wise as we are. <laughs> Do you want to talk about uh, symmetry and balance and equivalence. Yeah. This is something that you've talked about a lot. Um, and for me, it sparks up memories of um, teachings that music should be symmetrical because somehow this reflects God's order. So therefore we should only listen to Western art music. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. interesting Interesting for me reading about that. That's not, that's not the place that you're coming from, but you do talk about these concepts as, as tools. Yeah, very interesting. Thank you. Well, a couple of things come to mind there. Built into the Christian faith is a, is a pattern of creation, fall, and redemption. God created us good. Things have gone wrong. And now God's in the process of redeeming us. And will one day redeem us completely. There are two, two factors that, to that we must never forget. The first is, that, is the presence of evil. However you want to define it, however mysterious it is, uh, the world is, is flawed. It has a beauty, but it's an, as Tom Wright would put it, it's an aching beauty. Uh, there's, there's something dislocated. So it's beauty. You can't just read off the world. It's, it's something's gone wrong, and certainly something's gone wrong with us as well. The second thing we must remember, and this relates much more to the symmetry point, is that when we're talking about redemption, or indeed salvation, or any of these big words, we're not talking about a return to what was. So the new heavens, the new earth at the end of the Bible, the vision of the final climax to all things, is not a return to the Garden of Eden. It's not, in other words, a restoring of equilibrium. It is vastly more. It is excessive. It is abundant, indeed. And that's because God himself is abundant. So, the theme of abundance comes again and again and again in the, in the New Testament, when God is doing what Paul calls the new creation, when he's bringing about new things, he doesn't simply return things to what they were. He does something new, and it's always more than before. So, for instance, in John's Gospel, which is very, very strong, was, uh, at the wedding in Cana, you know, all the woman wanted was a couple of extra bottles, and she gets, I think it's equivalent to 180 gallons of wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, the woman at the well in John 4 gets much more than just enough water to get through the day. She gets uh, living water. Like overflowing water, exactly. Uh, and right when it comes to the resurrection, there's one the resurrection of Jesus is not resuscitation. Mm-hmm. It's not a return to his previous condition. Lazarus, yes, was raised to his previous condition and will die again, but not Jesus. His resurrection body exceeds the previous body. It is overflowing, you might say. And that's the future to what we're looking forward to. So the problem with symmetry is that you can easily suggest that beauty is just um, an exact equivalent. What, uh, you've had this in the past, something's gone wrong, and we'll return you to, the, to what it was before. 
No, God takes what was before, remakes it, transforms it into something much, much more wonderful than before. And the problem, therefore, you see, the concepts of beauty that are based on symmetry or equivalence is that we'll be over-obsessed with the idea of, well, as you say, just that, symmetry, balance. I see it as a very English way of understanding beauty. That is, mm-hmm. the English people, I'm Scottish myself, but, so I can be rude about the English. The English love balance. They're very anxious about any kind of extreme, especially extreme generosity. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, not, it's not that they're ungenerous, but they don't like people being over the top. Americans love generosity and are by their very nature <laughs> over the top. Um, and so they often get this point a little bit, uh, a little bit more easily. Um, or take uh, one more illustration of that, the Christian concept of justice. In the prodigal son uh, story, the, the son goes away in the far country and he returns. What does he expect? Because he told his father to drop dead, basically. He's gone, he's wasted all of his inheritance. And he comes back. He expects punishment. He said, you know, have me as one of your high servants for as long as you like, and hoping eventually dad might welcome him back into the house. That's what he's expecting, a kind of exact equivalent punishment. And we think that's what justice is about very often, a kind of balancing of the scales. You've done this wrong, and so you've got to have this amount of punishment, and then the scales will be balanced. What happens, of course, is the father runs out to meet him, which is an extraordinary act of generosity, and then invites him to a feast and has this ridiculous over-the-top party for his return. The eldest son looks on all that, and he's fuming and jealous because he lives in a world of exact correspondence and exact equilibrium and exact balance. He thinks, hey, I've worked this amount, and I've been a good boy, and here's the bad boy coming back, and you give him the feast, and you're not interested in me anymore. (laughs) Uh, So he wants justice of a certain sort. The the young son that has discovered God's justice, which is always aimed at restoring the offender, not just retributive punishment. So you can see how that uh, there's a kind of understanding of beauty and justice that kind of link with each other very well in terms of equilibrium. That's dangerous. Uh, What's much better is to rethink beauty in terms of this overflow of goodness. Uh, Then you've got a really Christian understanding of beauty and not just the kind of English country garden understanding of beauty which is everything absolutely matching everything else in perfect symmetry. Can we wrap this up by thinking about one thing that you write about, which is the relationship between sentimentality and beauty? Because I think we're talking about this this wonderful overflowing, this abundance, and you're actually pointing out that sometimes to understand beauty, you also have to see that beauty is not always perfect. There's there's something wrong. Great, Great question. I'm concerned very often in churches, this is in both my own country and in this country. I'm concerned about something like, uh, we, we call sentimentality. And sentimentality is the evasion or the trivialization of evil. Or perhaps in more Christian terms, it's you jump over the cross to the resurrection. You forget that the world has gone seriously wrong and we've gone seriously wrong, and that God has been down into those, de- into those dark depths that we've created, the hells that we create for ourselves. He's been down there, and redemption or salvation uh, comes that way, comes through Good Friday. And it's only through Good Friday that the uh, Easter is going to make any sense. 
The raising of Jesus on the third day is the raising of the crucified Jesus. Sadly, a lot of so-called Christian music, and this is across all styles, and not just um, so-called contemporary, but across all styles, evades dissonance. Uh, it will reach its cadences and its goals very predictably. It could suggest very easily that there's nothing wrong with the world and that all is okay and all's happy. Um, you find it when pastors say, we must give people music to enjoy. Well, up to a point, I can certainly see that. But suppose you don't say that about the sermon. At least I hope you don't. <laughs> uh, you say, oh, yeah, we must mention all that death and cross and blood stuff. Let's keep it nice. It's, it's better to be nice on Sunday morning. No, that's ridiculous because the cross stands at the center of the Christian faith. Without it, we're lost. So, so as far as music is concerned, I think we need more Christian composers and writers taking the cross and Christ's journey through the cross seriously. And that goes for the lyrics as well. I think most definitely it does. That if we're going to speak of victory and Christ's victory, it's a victory won through the most hideous event in human history, a naked man bleeding to death. And that's how God's love wins. That's how God's power defeats the principalities and powers. Uh, and I just think that needs to be built in into music and worship and the music music generally. Is that the kind of thing that you were? Uh, yeah, exactly. Because if, if we're not, we're not giving, we're not doing something that's real. We're making, as you said, a right. sentimental kind of music and it's not real. Well, that's the other thing. It's not real to the majority of people's experience. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yes, of course, there's great joy in the Christian faith, and quite rightly so. But the profoundest kind of joy in the Christian faith is when you recognize that God's come into the worst of your situation, however bad it is. He, he's, he's experienced worse than that. Um, so he can, there's no limit to how deep God can dig, so to speak. And it was just sentimental music. You get the impression that you have to be good enough and cheerful enough for God to be interested in you. As you rightly say, it's just not real a lot of the time to people's experience. The experience of death, of bereavement, of tragedy, of accidents, of illnesses, and, and all, the, all the, the, the suffering and the terrors of the world. Uh, God comes to meet us in those very places. And I think our music must reflect that at some stage. Yeah. And I, I'm thinking just for the music directors who are listening to this, even if an individual song doesn't do that, you can balance the songs that you program in a service so that Thank you. you have all of this, how can I keep from singing? How can I keep from singing? Wonderful, wonderful. You can balance that with another song that doesn't make it suggest that if you're depressed, you need to just leave the church. Uh, absolutely. Thank you for that. It's important. Some people say to me, oh, does that mean that every single song needs to speak about the cross? where every single song needs to have a whole lot of dissonance or something. No, not of course not. You're talking about the balance as you write the, the picture. The, what, what's the word? That's the, uh, the, the overall the repertoire. Yeah. The, the, total, the total amount of music you get in a service and across a week, uh, you know, the weeks and the months. Mm -hmm. But if there's nothing that acknowledges the darker side of life, what are we saying? Mm -hmm. But it, no, you can't get everything into a song or, a, or an anthem or a hymn. It's just not going to happen. You'll get some things, but not everything. This has been a, a really wonderful conversation. Thank you, Sarah. It's been delightful, and your questions are, are, are terrific. My best wishes to all who are listening, especially those who are working in churches with music. I mean, it's a fantastic ministry, but it's a hard one and a demanding one. Thank you to Dr. Jeremy Begbie for this conversation. You can find out more about him and his recent book, A Peculiar Orthodoxy, 
Reflections on Theology and the Arts, by going to the show notes for this episode at musicandthechurch.com slash 38. If you'd like to get in touch, send me an email at musicandthechurch at gmail.com. I'm Sarah Bariza, and I'll be back next month with another episode of Music and the Church.